Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. This is the conversation I had a few days ago with Green Party MEP Kieran Cuff. Uh, uh, we discuss much of the work that's been done in the European Parliament in relation to uh, reducing emissions in our buildings and in our homes and what they're calling the Great Renovation Wave. And we also get into problems and issues for the Green Party domestically, including problems around the recent vote on the no f- the moratorium on no-fault evictions and the issues ar- arising from his party colleague Nessa Horrigan's decision not to vote with the government. Speaking of Nessa, we have just finished recording a podcast with Nessa herself and that's going out in the next 10 minutes to patrons on the Patreon feed. So if you're a patron, just refresh that Tortoise Shack feed and you will have that very, very, very soon. There's a ton of additional content in there, including my conversation with Connor Reddy on the Postgraduate Workers Organization. And Keno Callahan talked all things housing from the SOC Dems perspective. And I was fortunate last night to get to chair a panel discussion with uh, Lucky and Mehmet on uh, Against the Hate as part of the May Day Badge Appeal launch in Unite the Union. And that is almost ready. And I'll have that with patrons in the next little while as well. If you're not a patron, please join us. We need your support. It's the only thing that keeps this show on the road. We have no ads. We have no sponsors. We rely entirely on the generosity of you to help pay it forward. And as I said, you get access to the podcast as quickly as I can turn them around. I won't delay any further. Enjoy this conflict with a small C with comrade Kieran Cuff. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves. And it must be a special a special uh, morning, Martin, because this is two mornings in a row. You've beaten Joe Duffy and you're up before before Joe said, sure, 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 sure. You all right? You said to me, we're up, we're in Bruxelles, and so I'm up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the last time you were in Bru- Bruxelles, or Bruxelles, whatever you want to call it, it was, what, 1983? <laughs> in and around that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, you were, and you were heading up to the pod later with your whistle and... <laughs> Oh, lads! I, I I do have a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, Wednesday evening, the where where do they where will we go? Podcast the live show is online. Uh, it is free. the The link to it is on our Patreon page, but you don't have to pay. It's free to come in. Rory will be hosting, and I'll be moderating and and looking after a Q and A session. Uh, there's a range of guests and people impacted by the. Eviction ban, and I keep getting upset saying, look, it's not, it was never an eviction ban. It was always a temporary moratorium on no-fault evictions. That's on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, our uh, friend Andrew O'Brien, who organised the May Day badge appeal, is kicking off on Unite the Union on Middle Abbey Street on Thursday evening. And I will be uh, chairing one of the panels. Uh, so, So do come along. And if you can't come along, just buy the bloody badges anyway. So enough plugging. Anyway. We are delighted to be rejoined on the podcast for the first time in 2023 by uh, by person referred to as I'm gonna I'm gonna give him his full title here. It's only fair that we do it. The hard left progressive comrade, Kieran Cuff. Kieran, uh, how are you doing? I thought of you just as a Green Party uh, MEP, but no, Bright, Breitbart say you are now the the leader of the hard left in the European Parliament. Apparently so. Apparently so. Um, persona non grata. But there's been a few people having a pop at me, mostly the right and far right. Um, not only not only Breitbart, but um, uh, our good friend Maloney in Italy was giving out about all these new laws coming from yeah. Brussels. We'll get we'll get to that in, in a moment. But before we do, let's talk about let's talk the, the business of what the last time we me and you were talking. 
you had a, we were having a conversation. We talked about CETA. We talked about other things, and we we agreed to disagree on some of them. And, and actually, we agree on much of it. But it's just the implementation that we have problems with. But one of the things you were very passionate about was the how we can reduce emissions by tackling basically buildings that are inefficient. And this is something that that you've talked about now. And I think I'm right. Again, you can correct me. I think you'd said to me the last time that that buildings were account for nearly thirty six percent of emissions within the EU. Uh, what? Where? Where's that work gone to now? And how much of it are you involved in? Because I believe that's why Breitbart are very upset with you. Indeed, they are. And uh, that is moving along. And uh, essentially, there's a, a new law called the Revised Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, which is all about trying to ensure we head towards most buildings having an A energy rating by 2050. And we do that in bite-sized chunks. We want to get everything uh, up to a D by uh, 2033 um, and so on uh, in bite-sized chunks moving along. And you're right, yeah, over a third of the greenhouse gas emissions come from buildings. 40% of the energy used in Europe is used in buildings. But more importantly, buildings are where we find people living in energy poverty, in fuel poverty. Uh, and you and I know uh, uh, that if somebody is living in a home that they can't heat, if there's mold, if there's damp, it's generally a poorly, poorly built or poorly maintained home. Uh, very often it's social housing, local authority uh, or voluntary housing uh, in Dublin and elsewhere. And we need to do something about that. So we we need to tackle our buildings because of the climate crisis, but also uh, there's a social crisis there. Uh, and the people most at risk are people living in uh, uh, homes with single glazed windows, uh, living in homes that they can't afford to heat. Uh, they're unhealthy, their kids are unhealthy, and we need to do something about that. So for all these reasons, and also it'll create jobs, 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 I think, isn't that the hashtag? Yeah, that's the hashtag EPP have at the moment. So it unites people left and right. We need to do something about buildings. Oh, 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 hang on. I realize people left and right. You just mentioned the EPP. Your own EPP, um, your own Irish MEP colleague, Sean Kelly of the EPP for Fine Gael, is very unhappy with you and your uh, and your agenda here on the green agenda and how it is actually going to penalize house homeowners. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Sean is in the largest political group in the European Parliament. I think there's 220 MEPs. The hilarious thing is, well, hilarious if it wasn't sad, when the file I'm working on came up for, for a vote, a third of his group voted for it, a third voted against, and a third abstained. And if you balance this out, you ended up with nine out of 220 votes and, and nine vote, votes in favour of the file. So they absolutely cancelled each other out when it came to voting. And the strongest ally was actually S&D, the Labour Party equivalent, as well as the Greens. So we got the file through. Uh, your question was, where is this law? It's, yeah. it's got through what they call a shadows agreement between the spokespeople of each party. It then got through the committee. And then two weeks ago, it got through the parliament. And now it's on to what we call inter-institutional negotiations. Basically, we have to hammer out a deal with the European Commission and the Council of Ministers, the 27 countries. And when we get through that, and it will probably take about three months, we then have a law that will be enacted in each of the 27 countries around Europe, from Finland to Malta to Ireland to, to Denmark.
Yeah, you didn't say Italy because they've been very opposed. You mentioned <laughs> you, you mentioned uh, the 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 new Italian Prime Minister. They have said, and and actually, it's interesting because we have discussed on this podcast myself and Martin previously about how it's been let known that the EPP have been trying to woo. Uh, Maloney's party to their side on the basis that they want to strengthen their numbers within the European Parliament. I, I look, I'm not speaking out of turn. I don't know if you saw this, Martin, over the weekend that um, uh, Maloney made some comments about, you know, again against the war, about the war in Ukraine, liked very much by the likes of Neil Richmond and, and Fine Gael people that, you know, you see these things on social media and you realise the the unlikely allies and yet it all makes sense. So, Kieran, Italy have said that what you're trying to do um, will not. They will not. They not only not input it. They want you. They want it uh, rewritten and go back to this. So, so have they? First of all, are they? Is that just? Is they just talking points, or do they have the power to do that? And will individual nation states have the power to do that? Um, I don't think Italy has the power to do it by themselves. Uh, obviously, the the council has to agree to uh, to a new law being agreed. But I think there's a qualified majority voting on this. So, if sixty percent of the countries and sixty percent of the population agreed to it, I think it goes through. But the hilarious thing is that Italy agreed to this file uh, three months ago, because there's a council opinion that has been agreed. So actually, Manoni's colleagues have signed off uh, on a draft opinion uh, on this file. So it's a bit odd. But I mean, they, the, the, her government weaponized the file. They said, Brussels is going to kick you out of your house. Brussels is going to uh, stop you selling your home. Brussels is going to, et cetera, et cetera. And Salvini, uh, who you would remember from, uh, kind of stopped the boat Spain. You will remember. You will remember from such junior fascism moments as. Oh, exactly, exactly. And look, there's all kinds of movement at a European level of who's cozying up to who. I, to be honest, I thought the body language, the mood music between Meloni and Varadkar at a council summit maybe a month ago, I was a little bit wary of. Um, but actually, EPP. I mean, look, they held on to Fidesz in Hungary uh, with with a with a close peg on their nose for a very long time until uh, did they leave or did Fidesz leave? I can't remember whether they were I, well, no, they, they, they all wrote a letter. That's to, right. And actually Ireland wouldn't sign the, sign letter, the letter. Yes. And then yeah. what happened in the end was Fidesz walked before allegedly being pushed. That's yeah. what that's where the and when you think about that, you know, again we were talking. We, Martin, we, did we talk about this the weekend about the fact that some of the stuff that that has been going on um, in in Israel, for example, the, the 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 attacks on the judiciary, the attacks on the on democracy. If Fidesz had been doing it, we'd have heard a lot more of the European Parliament. I put it to you. Yeah, I, look, I I, I agree, um, uh, but I guess we focus very closely on what's going on within the twenty seven member states. Uh, so issues around rule of law, issues around the independence of the judiciary, issues around the LGBTQ plus rights. Uh, these come in for an awful lot of scrutiny uh, in Europe. Uh, but when these things happen elsewhere, I mean, we don't talk about LGBTQ plus rights in the Middle East, in Saudi no, Arabia I, I, or Qatar. I, I, I'm accepting that, Karen, but I also don't know why we stand, why, you know, Ursula von der Leyen stands and says, we welcome the new government, we, you know, new uh, enhanced deals, you know, all of these things. Yeah, I remember that. I remember that tweet. Um, I Look, I think there is a legacy issue there. Uh, and I know even within my group, where Germans are the largest group, they are very reluctant to be publicly critical of the state of Israel's treatment of Palestine. 
to be honest, I think it's a blind spot. And uh, I mean, my my colleague, Grace O'Sullivan, sits on the Palestinian delegation. She was over there about three weeks ago. Uh, you and I know about the human rights abuse uh, in, uh, in the West Bank, in Palestine. And yet there is insufficient criticism of it from uh, from EPP and from Europe. I, I, the Irish government, in fairness, in fairness, has been relatively critical compared well, to a lot of its European colleagues. Take, okay, I'll take it. I'll take. I'll take that twenty percent is better than 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 no percent. But I will. Let's go back to the buildings thing. You mentioned the co- uh, the the ability to do this. The cost of this, Karen. Last time we spoke about this, actually, it was funny. We're going back to Italy again because they introduced grants to do it that were paying for the full, uh, full, full whack of much of it. Where are we standing? Who's so so? Because you know what's going to happen. They're going to say, "Who's going to pay for this? Who's yeah. going to? Where are you going to get the? Where are you going to get the I money? I can't from? get my head around what they did in Italy because they started off with the eco bonus, which is what it says on uh, on the tin. It was like a sixty percent grant aid. Then they went to the super bonus, and you ended up getting. I think 110 or 120 percent of the costs of doing the works made available to you from the government, and they still give out about this. So Italy is a different place. Uh, and yeah, but 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 110 percent to me sounds a lot more attractive than you know maybe 40 percent, maybe 50 yeah. percent for for struggling households. Yeah, I I I can't understand it because actually I I think they need to be much more selective in how they give the money and who they give the money to because there's Certainly, anecdotal evidence that people were doing up their holiday homes. Right, that, there's not, there's not anecdotal. We've noticed it got abused. Every system gets abused. Yes. Okay, but yeah. we also see it now. And let's again, I, accepting that you're not here on the ground in Dublin, we see at the moment. You know, the, the, there was good grants, Martin. We talked about good grants for you know installing your your charger for your electric car. Now we're reducing. Now we're reducing that here. I mean, what what the hell are we doing here? Are we? Are we yeah. Well, I, if I, if I had a bag of money and I wanted to green transport, I'm not sure if I'd give all of the bag of money to buying an electric charger for your car. No, but sir, no, I wouldn't go to the people who can afford Teslas immediately anyway. Yeah, yeah. Do you know what yeah. I mean? I, they wouldn't be my they wouldn't be my target audience. So no, no, and that's why that's why what's more, much more important is the twenty percent drop in public transport fares for everybody and the fifty percent uh, drop in youth fares, and that is making the difference. I can see my own kids decide to. Uh, Take the dart instead of all of them. But you do know the car. difference. The difference between a free public transport system in Ireland and a paid for is about five hundred million. I think it's more than that, Martin. The last time I looked. Well, the subvention um, is about four hundred and eighty, but then you're you got to factor. I in. know, but that's but 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 you would have to if you were to just replace the subvention and make it free. You you'd have greater patronage, so you'd need more vehicles, and also then what would the private operators do? They would be straight into the four gold mines I, uh, you're, for their share. You're uh, you're you're upsetting me now, worrying about those poor old private operators. <laughs> I had to, I'm an optimism tree. Listen, I know where you use they're coming from, but but they have to pay. Uh, they they have to pay the bills as well. Karen, well, Karen, every fifteen minutes a bus drives by that window there, and it says, "Drive this bus for eight hundred quid a week." Right, I know they're dying. They're, they're so they want those stuff. So there's there's plenty of this. Anyway, look, we're we're digressing. It's a European issue, and actually, I, I sit down with people in Europe, and they're saying, "What are you going to do with this? We need to let people drive at seventeen or sixteen. Uh, we need to relax the working time directives." And I'm kind of going, 
how about you just pay him a bit more? Yeah. So, um, Karen, I'm going to I'm, I'm going to digress a little. You yeah. mentioned Germany, and you mentioned Germany previously, but again, Germany are going to send tanks to Ukraine. We see depleted uranium is going to be sent to Ukraine. Yeah. We see a lot of this is going on, and you say that every conversation in the in the EU at some level is about Ukraine. It is. How is that going? How is is there any end in sight? Is there any way this is ever going to stop? I think those who are sending tanks to Ukraine would argue that by giving the Ukrainian army more firepower, it will push back Russia and it will allow Ukraine to retake territory that they have lost to an invader. And I absolutely understand why people would wish to do that. I think we're very insulated in Ireland from the huge fear that people have in Central Europe about what Russia might do. I started reading Putin's 6,000 word essay about why he feels Russia should expand to this mythical set of borders that they had 100 years ago. And it's scary. And in Ireland, we kind of go, oh, God, it's awful. And uh, there's huge pressure to bring in Ukrainians to Ireland. But if you're in Estonia or Latvia or Lithuania, and I was actually, I was in or, Warsaw. Or, 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 or even if you're of an open mind and in Belarus. Or we all, we know this, Kieran. We know there's absolutely, like, the, we've Konstantin Gordiev on this, on this podcast regularly. Konstantin, people forget, was born in the old USSR. Mm-hmm. That's what, and he will talk about the, the sovereignty of his, is, is Ukrainian aunts and uncles, you know, yeah. and now and now they are Ukrainian, and he and he accepts it. So I get, I know what you're saying about definitely in Ireland we are more in, insulated, and maybe that's not a bad thing as well because we have certain level of we can we can actually look at it with it with a different kind of uh, a different eye. You don't, you know, some opposing views are actually healthy to 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 shape to shape decisions. But what I would push, what I would posit though, is this idea of Russia being bad. You know this. The bigger game, the bigger geopolitical game is, you know, the 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 Cold War that's now between China and what we would loosely term as the West. And that's that's you know, Russia's like Russia's sanctions on Russia haven't actually have actually not worked. And Constantine will break this down better than I can because of this dreaded phrase, the pivot towards China. You know, all of these things that have that have actually happened. Yeah, but I, I don't think they're joined at the hip China and Russia. Uh, and I think we, as a, as a power block of, of Europe, need to box clever in not closing off communications with everyone. And even if we mm-hmm. hate China's policies towards the Uyghurs, I think it's important to to have conversations with them. I, I did uh, was over in China twice before I was elected to Europe, teaching uh, in Beijing with with TU Dublin, and met a lot of young Chinese people. They're, they're very much aware of what's going on in the world. Uh, they don't prize democracy as much as us. They prize community action. Um, so it is a different set of values. But I think it would be certainly prudent to keep the lines of communication open there. Um, but at the same time, be absolutely wary of what they're doing to certain groups of people. But I, I think going back to going back to Ukraine, I mean, what's extraordinary is that my colleagues, my green colleagues in uh, Sweden and Finland, they are even more strongly advocating membership of NATO. 
uh, for their countries than the average Joe in those countries. Heidi Hautula, a colleague from from Sweden, uh, she's maybe on her for, fourth term here. She she's a wise political um, uh, individual, but she says, "Look, we have whatever she is thirteen hundred kilometer long border with Russia. We need to protect that. We need to be ready to defend this. We don't trust Putin, and that's the reality for her here in Ireland." We almost joked about the proposed Russian exercises off the coast of Ireland and the brave Irish trawlers went down to to see off Russia. But it is deadly serious. And the submarine circling around undersea cables, the aircraft circling around where those undersea cables are. In Ireland, we are incredibly dependent on data and on the digital economy. And if those pipelines went down in the same way as Nord Stream went down, it could be crippling to the Irish economy within the space of a few days. I know, no, no, but hang on, Kieran. I, I, we have, we like, we were the data protection uh, and data. Martin, you know this better than most because we've done it. Like we, the EU, the data center for the EU is, is is in Ireland. All of these major corporations that their their EU base is based out of Ireland. But you don't for for one second think we should have F sixteen uh, planes or or submarines of our own going around. I mean, I mean, we can't. Two. If we were to join NATO, it's a two percent of our budget. That's no, no. I I don't think we, we we should. But one of the few reports I read from cover to cover over the last two years was the Commission on the Defence Forces, hmm. and it was scary. It it in a nutshell, it said, "Listen, lads." We haven't moved on in 40 years. We need to get our act together. And actually, I just see in one of the headlines today about um, abuse in the defence forces and uh, an inquiry into that. But yes. I mean, they literally said we haven't moved on in certain areas since the 80s. For instance, in cybersecurity, that's a good issue to talk about for a moment. We have almost no cybersecurity capability within the defence forces. We need to recruit good IT people to do this, but we also need to cooperate. And historically, certainly within the Greens, we've said, don't cooperate. We do this alone. We're neutral. We're non-aligned. We don't, we don't talk to others. But you cannot fight cybersecurity threats without cooperating very strongly with other countries around Europe. So I think there's a debate we have to have about what the role of our defence forces is in the 21st century. I don't think we should be reliant on the UK uh, to actually work out who's in the airspace above Ireland. So I think we need to have radar there. This costs real money. And then ultimately, we have to pay our defence forces a decent wage so we don't have like two out of three ships sitting in a port because we don't have the the crew to to go out on them. That That is a serious conversation. Mm. It does mean spending more money on defence, and it does mean certainly cooperating with other countries in Europe, certainly on cyber security. But actually, up until Ukraine, the biggest call-outs in Europe were over um, natural disasters, which are more and more caused by climate change. So the floods that killed 200 people in Belgium and Germany, the forest fires in um, Spain and Portugal, the armies were called out for that, and they have to talk to each other about what their role is. I believe we can be neutral. And I believe every neutral country is neutral within its sphere of sphere of influence, yeah. which is what yeah. we are. We're, You're we're, right, Martin. We're not a, a 100% neutral. So being cooperative with our neighbours 
is always part of being neutral. We, we're neutral within our sphere. We're meant to be the voice of reason within our own sphere of influence. And we can move more nimbly by being neutral and by being able to talk to everyone, which is if you're in NATO, you cannot do that. Absolutely. So why would you we can be... look up on the Department of Defense? You can look at the deployment of defense forces and senior guardy around the world. And you'll see that we're there in the Balkans. We're there in certain parts of Africa. And quite often what we're trying to do is to keep the peace and make the peace by diplomacy, by sitting down for cups of tea. Now, if I... we join NATO or we go for any military alliance, we abandon all of that. Yeah. And we've built up an international reputation over a hundred years as yeah. a trusted peacekeeper in some of the worst places in the world. Are we prepared to throw that away? I'm not... I, I, I don't think we are, Martin, but I think there will be discussions over greater involvement on defence issues in order to protect Well, ourselves. again, with this argument with Ireland, we can't defend our own borders. We can't defend our own borders because we're a very small country with a very small population. And if we were invaded tomorrow, the actual only real way to defend this country is to arm the population. We can't mm. build an army. We don't the, have the, the people just, to do so. I, I feel we, I, can we can we come come to this in, in the broad sense? Just a couple of things. The erosion of our neutrality has, has because you only have to go back here on to, I think it was just as you got elected that, you know, the PESCO discussions were kicking off just before you went into the into the European Parliament. And there was a lot of talk saying, don't worry about PESCO, don't worry about PESCO. And only last <clears throat> Friday, I heard the, the Taoiseach, who was at the time, uh, the Taoiseach, when, when this, the, the, you know, on a second term saying, you know, oh, because he told people not to worry about PESCO. It was nothing. It wasn't a military thing. It was just security cooperation. Then tell the 6-1 News on Friday, should we already have it? Isn't PESCO part of uh, this? And you go, well, hang on now. You know, so it is a, it is, it is an erosion. There's no question there's been an erosion. And we, 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 you sit here, you're a member of the Green Party. You know what happens in Shannon. You know, you, you've got colleagues who are activist colleagues in, in the Green Party who still maintain the faith in the party more so than maybe I do. <laughs> and, uh, and they go out and they, and they, they go out the Shannon and they protest, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. we, we, we do have to be serious. Look, we've gone a little bit off to off topic here. I want to ask one last question on the buildings thing before we before we get yeah. to it. Is there re is it true there's a fo fossil fossil fuel loophole in, when it comes to gas boilers, Kieran? There is, yeah. There's a, it allows for hybrid boilers, uh, which was the only way we would have got the file across the line. So uh, you can have a boiler that is um, that can run on different fuels, on fossil fuels and non-fossil fuels. It, it's a problem. Um, I, I happily, hands up, I didn't get what I wanted uh, in there on, on that side of things. And with any of these files, they're complicated. It's to do with the charging of cars. It's to do with what type of fuels are used, and it's to do with energy poverty. I mean, there's a there's a publication we 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 published the energy poverty handbook uh, on making sure that there's what we call books or clauses in there to prevent renovations. I I know in the week that's in it, I should be tiptoeing very carefully. Oh, this. we're we're getting there. No, <laughs> the one more thing, bit of a uh, uh, Tony, isn't it? Yeah, we'll we'll get there. Uh, but uh, you're right. There is there is. Uh, it allows for hybrid boilers, and we simply wouldn't have had that lack of votes from EPB uh, without that commitment to hybrid I, boilers. I appreciate your honesty on it, and, and I do I do expect that. But we do need to talk about about the first of all. I suppose if I was going to be really 
Really Maybe. cheeky. Yeah, yeah, really cheeky, okay. Martin. I'm going to say, you've gone off to the European Parliament. You're fighting the good fight in terms of these some of these issues that we've discussed here. Will there be a Green Party left for you to come back to? I, as always, uh, Martin, it's tough being in government. Um, and there's a lot of, there's a lot of upset uh, and worry about some of the policies uh, that the government is enacting. Pretty much for the last two years, Tony, we've been sort of up and up and down 5%, 3%, 4%, 5%. Um, so I don't see the 7% that we had on election day two years ago. Um, but I, I I think it is challenging well, being well, the government, well, but I don't see the, well, no, the but free it, fall that we had last you, time. Around. You mentioned it about the two years. So let's go specifically to to your former colleague, and I'm calling her your former colleague, Nessa Horrigan. She's got a 15-month suspension, but she'll probably text me later and, and give out to me for using this phrase. But nonetheless, she said there was, she worried that there was no, the Green Party values weren't represented in the uh, triumvirate meeting of the three leaders in 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 that building yeah. do you feel do you feel gov, uh, green green party values were represented because when you see the outcome of the decision to lift the temporary moratorium and no fault evictions yeah i i thought nasa's words were were very strong uh, on that point i do think the green party was uh, was there at the table obviously with our party leader Raymond ryan i look on nasa as a friend and a colleague and i catch up with her uh, when I can, we sat down literally at a cafe on Capel Street within the last 12 months and we spent about an hour and a half uh, talking. Uh, and I think there are there are decisions of government that are tough and I can absolutely understand why NASA did what she did. Um, I think it's tough to take the whip away from her for 15 months, but it is the third time that she uh, has disregarded the whip and God knows if if every TD said, "Look, government is 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 a menu, uh, not not." I'll, well, I suppose if if everybody said uh, it's a vote of conscience whether we put people, uh, we evict people or not. I mean, we can. There are ways and means around these things, Kieran. We we invoke votes of conscience when it suits us to. Yeah, I I think I think it was genuinely a vote of conscience for NASA. I, I think I mean I saw an account there of her coming out of the. Doyle and she said, "Look, I'm not in a good headspace," and I thought that was absolutely genuine. There's the, one the one question or two, and you've you've said it twice, and I want to because it keeps getting repeated and repeated. Tough decisions. It's not a tough decision to evict those with least agency. I don't care what anyway anyway you cut that up. It's not a tough decision. The tough decision is not to do that and to take on the money to people. They actually made the easy decision, not the tough decision. Mm. I mean, they would argue, yeah, it was a pandemic measure and the pandemic is receding and therefore we could do this. But I think the bigger issue is is the housing crisis. Um, but, but, but just on that point, is it a tough decision to evict those with no agencies rather than to go after those who have all the power and all the money? I think... I think it's tough on either side. No, there's not two sides. One well, no, side no, is no, going to be no, here, yeah, yeah. One side is homeless, destitute. The other side, little less profit. Now, it's not a comparison. There is, you can't compare one to the other. I'm really fed up of people doing it. You can't. 
to say it was a tough decision. Can, can, I, can I, say, I? I was saying it was a very tough decision for NASDAQ to to uh, to to vote against government. Is it tough being in government? It is. It is because we are in government. We are a centre left party, and we're in government with two centre right parties who historically have failed to acknowledge the degree of the housing crisis in the state since since the state's inception. And if I if I look back at the succession of housing ministers, whether it be Alan Kelly from Labour, whether it be Owen Murphy from Fine Gael, I think they have constantly failed to understand the extent to which there is a crisis in housing in Dublin. No one's disputing that. Look, Alan Kelly was the person who said HAP is social housing. That was that was one of the genesis of this actual crisis because when you decide that HAP is a HAP tenancy is a social ho- home and it's not it's insecure you're only for six months away from a notice to quit then you're in a lot of trouble and that and that was the genesis of of much of this insecurity in the rental sector. But Karen, you're oh, absolutely and if you're a HAP no 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 you're you're in Brussels you're in Brussels. What's the story with no fault evictions there? The story in Brussels is that you have strong rights as a tenant to a three-year tenancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you leave that tenancy earlier, you have to pay a full three months um, uh, to to your landlord. Speaking from from bitter experience here, but there is an understanding that for many people, renting, whether you're rich or poor, is something you do for your entire life. I remember being in Berlin with a group of students, probably six or seven years ago. And we had a fellow, a young guy who was our tour guide from a group of students. And he said, I wouldn't buy a house, an apartment. That wouldn't be too risky. It's much safer to be a tenant. So in mainland Europe, certainly in many of the Nordic countries, being an owner or a renter is seen as being equal in Many respects. So, 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 right now, you have more protections than you would have if you were someone renting in Stony Batter. Absolutely, absolutely, and I would like to see the 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 same protections in Ireland. But, but both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael say very publicly that we prioritise home ownership over renting, and I don't think you would hear that said in political discourse in Belgium. Or in Germany, I mean, some parties would, maybe EPP uh, would say that. But the moment you prioritise one form of occupation over another, it then so so much so Martin's point. Was, so Martin's point was correct. There is no like like four percent of the population, less than four percent of the population are landlords, except for their disproportionately represented in the doll, you know, that's mm. a different question. Uh, but and yet, you know, we hear that there's this balance. We have to have. You know, we have to talk about, as Martin said, someone been made, potentially been made to, to wander the streets, represent down a Park Gate Street to present as homelessness, go through that trauma. And that's the same as someone saying, well, you know, um, the, the I'm not I don't like the new tax uh, having to pay income tax when the when the REITs don't pay as much income tax. That's a that's a that's a different argument. Go over there. And no, no, I, I accept that it is. It is and, a different argument. But I think what Martin said initially was I, I was saying that it's tough. You have to make tough decisions in government, and I don't for a moment equate when it's like me. Okay, okay, okay. But but if you're you're going to make those, if you're going to make those tough decisions, tell me what makes it worthwhile staying in government. Then it's because 
you're like you've backloaded all the, the the carbon emission targets to the next stall effectively you you're you're rolling out um potential you know carbon budgets on different areas and saying now they're law and other people and we haven't hit them once there's all sorts of issues you're putting, in, you're putting in place the building blocks for what will deliver in the in the coming years and if you look around and say well look if we walked away who else would do this i mean Sinn Féin don't even believe in putting a price on carbon so i think when you certainly look at it in terms of climate action, what we're putting in place with the legislation is the ability to to make real change. And then you look at the kind of the actual measures that have been implemented, uh, a 50 percent drop in in public transport fares for young people. Is that the first time it's happened in 50 years that there's been a drop in fares? Know, but, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't 50 years over childcare. No, it doesn't. But I, I guess, Martin, what I'm pointing to is some things that I see as being a success. I think things like uh, rolling out a, a, a trial of a basic income scheme for artists is a success. Funny, I mean, over here in Belgium, funny, artists funny, were out. Funny uh, you mentioned that one because I was talking to German TV last week just about the UBI for the artists and I was talking and and look I, at you with the high polite journey brought in and I brought in a few professional musicians from Ireland to have a discussion this will all be out in coming weeks yeah um so I brought in a few professional and the professional musicians in Ireland don't like UBI they're saying yeah. UBI isn't going to professional musicians in fact they can't get a record of who is getting UBI What's their status? Are they a professional musician, an amateur musician? Are they a band, you know, that just plays mm-hmm. wedding gigs? Are they a band that plays? Nobody knows. Nobody. Yeah, didn't they? Yeah, do it on a lottery basis, Martin. Yeah, yeah. But I don't know. See, I mean, you may. But you see, there's professional musicians. Well, well, Martin, I can say this yeah. for a fact: to knowing people who got UBI, there is an actual disquiet of of them wanting to actually say it because they feel almost guilty at the moment because yeah. it's a pilot scheme. Yeah. They feel uh, on a personal level, Kieran. They they feel like to if they admitted it, people would say, you know, oh, as if you know, oh, you, you, it's like some you got some you won some sort of lottery or something. Right. And and I know I I know specifically two people personally whose name came out of that lottery, uh, yeah. and and are still working part time, doing putting yeah. time into all sorts of things to try and keep try and keep to pay Dublin rents because it's Dublin bloody rents. You know? Oh yeah, look, I know, I know. I mean, we're in a crazy position where we have the highest rate of GDP of any country in Europe. Uh, there is, for those who can, there is practically full employment at the moment. Uh, we are an outlier in European terms and that is creating huge pressures on Dublin, but uh, particularly on Dublin in terms of both rents and uh, prices. I mean, can, can, is... can I ask one last question? Because it's important. You just said that on, on on the GDP figures and what's happening. So what we know, it's really it's really unusual. Um, what we're seeing, and it's it's like a huge global group um group think. The Fed, the Fed have said it out loud. By the way, we had John Schwartz from the Intercept on this podcast last year, Martin, who said that they had the minutes from a, a Fed meeting where they said the unemployment rate is too low. Do you remember That's this? Right. And they said so they need so. You know, a lot of this interest rate cycle in, in hiking it up so so quickly is to create unemployment, Kira. It's to create, it's to drive down. And that is, they've said that out loud. Now we see it with the ECB, not as quickly as as the central bank, in the, the, the British central bank, the English central bank or the Fed. But they are creating unemployment because they want, they want to dampen down inflation. 
Where? Yeah, I mean, well, no, 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 no. I want to, here's the question for you. Within yeah. the European Parliament, is anybody putting forward the argument that let's not let's not um, dampen, let's not create unemployment, let's introduce more wealth taxes? Yeah, I mean, the Greens are to the fore and calling for a wealth tax, and uh, there, there's we've been campaigning on that, and we've been putting forward specific resolutions uh, on that. I mean, I I think what we need is decent well-paid jobs that are there through good times and bad, which brings me back to the buildings because um, there is a very strong argument for this kind of 30 years of renovations um, that is counter-cyclical as a form of employment. In other words, uh, the jobs are there in good times, that they're in bad terms. And the kind of conversations I've had with the European Investment Bank, the European Central Bank, they want to give the money to this. Um, the EIB was lending at minus 1%. And actually about 200 million has gone into renovations of social housing in Dublin uh, over the last few years. Um, they I, Dublin Airport got its third runway funded just before EIB said, oh, we're the climate bank now. Everything is about climate action. So they got in just before the, the shutters came down. But since then, several hundred million has gone into upgrades for local authority housing. A bit like, you know, um, St. Brickens Court around the corner from where I am in Stony Badder. The classic two-story old folks housing has been done up from kind of an E energy rating to an A energy rating. And the people living there, they don't know themselves. Warm homes, comfortable, and the life expectancy will go up. The level of happiness will certainly go up. Uh, and that's oh, kind of Smith, Smithfield's become far too hipster to be happy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think the, the crowd living there were, were thinking of the hipster content before they. Uh, I lived in I lived in Stony Better at one stage myself, Karen. I know the area. It's nice to see it being it is because a lot of those buildings were in awful state. Yeah. One last comment. It's not really a question, just a comment from me, Karen. When you think of all the money that is being spent on war in Ukraine. Do you ever think to yourself as a Green, God, had all that money before this war started, why weren't we fighting the environmental war? I think every day, Martin, you wake up saying that, that where money can be found in a hurry um, for what needs to be done. I mean, the the pandemic money, what we call the recovery and resilience funding, that's 1.1 trillion euro. Of which we see none. We're no, we're getting we're getting eight hundred million, and we were offered another eight hundred at a zero interest loans, and we didn't take the eight hundred. I think um, that zero interest loan. I was like, <laughs> why, why would you want to take it? Like, Tony, Tony, offer me an eight hundred million zero. Back. Yeah, <laughs> don't, don't get me started on that. But but um, no, because that comes up as a big issue with the buildings file of where you're going to get the money, and the, mm, yeah. there is a lot of. Uh, money available for that. But yeah, Martin, I mean, you think about that every day. Uh, was it Iraq? Was it a $3 trillion war? But I mean, uh, Ukraine will be will be something similar, I'm sure. And it's not just about the, the cost of armaments uh, and defense and human lives and suffering. It is then the cost of rebuilding. Uh, and that will, I assume, be equal. And there's already discussions about the green rebuilding of Ukraine. Um, but uh, I think the biggest wake-up call for Europe at the moment, people always say, what's it like there after Brexit? What's your relationship with the UK? To be honest, the discussion in the corridors here in Brussels is about when will Moldova come into Europe? When will uh, will Georgia be let in? 
What's happening with the Western Balkans? What's the pace of reform in Albania or Macedonia? So the discussion, the political discussions move on. And the historic shift is that the European Union is moving east. And we need to ensure that we have democratic institutions, that we have rule of law. And that's why we spend an awful lot of time talking about that when we look at Viktor Orban or we look at what's going on in, in Belarus. But I think the hand of history is on democracy spreading east. Uh, and I think that will continue. And it does, as I said at the outset, it takes up a lot of time here. Um, I think we absolutely have to be wary of those who just want to double defense expenditure and say it's all hunky-dory. There's a whole thing about military use infrastructure or dual use infrastructure. This is like reinforcing bridges so they can take tanks. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you let EPP away with it, they would be just reinforcing bridges left, right and center and blowing the kind of money that we need for tackling climate change. Well, it'd be a change for them building, changing for them to build bridges for once rather than tear them down, Kieran. It would be a change. Listen, thanks very much for having this conversation with us, Kieran. It is really nice to talk to somebody who's a, a devout trot in the EU and who's held. Kieran <laughs> <laughs> is a Kieran. I forgot to say, he has asked me to remind us that it's it's now referred to as the EU SSR. Um, <laughs> so I, I found a lovely woman from Northern Ireland last week. She said, "I'm a European Unionist." No, well, uh, <laughs> I, have to, I have to get my head around that. Uh, Garon, thanks for having the chat with us. Uh, let's hope that things get better. Um, we would like yeah. all like to see an end to the war in Ukraine. And I think if that ended, then we could say, oh, there's loads of money there now. You could be spending on retrofitting all the houses across the EU. I hear you. Listen, folks, we've been a pleasure. Thank you for reaching out. Thanks a lot, Karen, again for coming on. And I always appreciate that. If nothing else, you, you get a you get a laugh out of us with with our with our uh, pernickety, uh, relentless Marxism. Uh, but we 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 will we will be back talking. I think Owner Bryn is going to rejoin us for a short chat around the outcome from of of the vote on his legislation. And as I said at the outset, we're live tomorrow evening. Uh, with the with the people from I think it's Focus Ireland Threshold and some of the people who are facing uh, eviction notices at the moment so we'll be having that conversation as well lots coming your way thanks for listening folks and we'll talk to you all very very soon take care bye bye Tony and Martin Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people only it's the Echo Chamber podcast subscribe now on Patreon.